The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. We are going to go through this week a couple of articles I wrote about the responsible use of algorithms. You can find these originally on Singularity Hub, but I'm doing them in an audio format today for this episode. And the first one is about YouTube, YouTube's algorithm. Goethe's The Sorcerer's Apprentice is a classic example of many stories on a similar theme. The young apprentice enchants a broom to mop the floor, avoiding some work in the process, but the enchantment quickly spirals out of control. The broom, monomaniacally focused on its task, but unconscious of the consequences, ends up flooding the room. The classic fear surrounding hypothetical superintelligent AI is that we might give it the wrong goal or insufficient constraints. Even in the well-developed field of narrow AI, we see that machine learning algorithms are very capable of finding unexpected means and unexpected ways to achieve their goals. For example, let loose in the structured environment of video games, where a simple function, points scored, is to be maximised, they often find new exploits or cheats to win without properly playing. In some ways, YouTube's algorithm is an immensely complicated beast. It serves up billions of recommendations a day to many users around the world. But its goals, at least originally, were fairly simple. They were only to maximise the likelihood that the user will click on a video and the length of time they spend on YouTube. It has been stunningly successful. 70% of time spent on YouTube is watching recommended videos, amounting to 700 million hours a day. Every day, humanity as a collective spends a thousand lifetimes watching only the videos that YouTube has recommended to it. The design of this algorithm, of course, is driven by YouTube's parent company, Alphabet, maximising its own goal, advertising revenue, and hence the profitability of the company. Practically everything else that happens is a side effect. The neural nets of YouTube's algorithm form connections, statistical weightings that favour some pathways over others, based on the colossal amount of data that we all generate by using the site. It may seem an innocuous or even a sensible way to determine what people want to see, but without oversight, the unintended consequences can be nasty. Now, I should point out that this is a huge industry, and not just an industry, it's, a, it's an academic complex. If you go, as I did, it's very eye-opening, to the International Conference on Machine Learning a few years ago, you'll find that there are whole swathes of people, academic PhDs, AI PhDs, they're called, getting millions of dollars when they finally uh, emerge from academia into companies to design these algorithms. And they're doing some incredibly high-level, complicated mathematics. Things like bandit theory, which are attempting to uh, improve by tiny percentages the mathematical models which predict in advance how likely you are to click on an individual video. 
And every time these improvements are made to these algorithms that can cause a tiny percentage of extra people to click on a recommended video, the result is millions more eyes on YouTube and millions more hours of viewing and ad revenue for the company. So these mathematical tweaks, uh, which are really at the fringes of mathematics and algorithm design uh, that are happening here, are worth huge amounts of money to the right people. You'd be amazed. Truly, I think that some of the finest minds of this generation are being spent figuring out more and more intricate and complicated ways of attempting to get more eyes on more adverts for longer. But of course, when there's no oversight as to what's actually the content that these algorithms are directing people towards, the consequences can be very bad. Riaim Chaslow, a former engineer at YouTube, has helped to expose some of these. Speaking to the next web, he pointed out, quote, The problem is that the AI isn't built to help you get what you want, it's built to get you addicted to YouTube. Recommendations were designed to waste your time, end quote. More than this, they can waste your time in harmful ways. Inflammatory, conspiratorial content generates clicks and engagement. If a small subset of users watches hours upon hours of political or conspiracy theory content, the pathways in the neural net that recommend this content are reinforced over time. The result is that users can begin with innocuous searches for relatively mild content and find themselves quickly dragged towards extremist or conspiratorial material. A survey of 30 attendees at a Flat Earth conference showed that all but one of them originally came upon the Flat Earth conspiracy via YouTube, with the lone dissenter exposed to the ideas from family members who were in their turn converted by YouTube. Many readers and this writer know the experience of being sucked into a wormhole of related videos and content when browsing on social media. Quite often these wormholes are fairly innocuous, maybe it's, I don't know, let's play Pokemon videos or something along these lines, but of course these wormholes can be extremely dark. Recently, there was a lot of allegations surrounding a paedophile wormhole on YouTube, which was discovered, a recommendation network of videos of children which was frequented by those who wanted to exploit them. In TechCrunch's investigation, it only took a few recommendation clicks from a somewhat raunchy search for adults in bikinis to reach this exploitative content. It's simple, really. As far as the algorithm with its one objective is concerned, a user who watches one factual and informative video about astronomy, and then goes on with their day, is less valuable and less advantageous to the algorithm than a user who watches 15 Flat Earth conspiracy videos in a row. In some ways, none of this, of course, is particularly new. The algorithm is just learning, automated in its own way, to exploit familiar flaws in the human psyche to achieve its ends, just as other algorithms find flaws in the code of 80s Atari games to score endless points by uh, recognising a glitch in the machine that will allow them to rack up endless points over and over again. And what we're seeing here is really the automation of the attention industry, something that has existed for centuries. Take the situation in 19th century Paris, where poster makers exploited the aspects of the human psyche that were attracted to clear and gaudy images, bright colours, attractive women, and the impression of motion. The poster craze, started by Jules Charest, caused the education of everyone through the retina, luminous, brilliant, even blinding, vivid sensations and intense emotions. Instead of the bare wall, the wall attracts as a kind of chromolithographic salon as was written by contemporaries at the time. Conspiratorial tabloid newspaper content is replaced with clickbait videos on similar themes. The first ever newspaper to make the majority of its money through advertising, rather than through sales or through the patronage of its wealthy owners, was a penny dreadful called the New York Sun, which used to get its lurid content by hanging around the courtroom for stories of drunkenness, debauchery and crime. And nowadays we have true crime podcasts. I mean, many of these I love and I listen to myself, but they ultimately tap into the same cognitive exploit that is this fascination with death, murder, crime, grim, true-life narratives of the macabre. The New York Sun once sold many issues by pretending that Sir John Herschel, the astronomer, had discovered large, angel-like creatures living on the moon. 
It was one of the earliest examples of science fiction presented as science fact, which you can still see in some of the trashier papers that revel in loosely scientific UFO or asteroid strike stories. And it helped them sell ads. Now we have YouTube conspiracy videos about UFOs, the imminent apocalypse, the ground conspiracies running everything, and so forth. But just as humans have learned to exploit all of these different cognitive uh, defects or cognitive exploits, I suppose you might say, in how people function, the algorithms are now automating this process and learning how to do it better than ever before. Our short attention spans are exploited by social media algorithms rather than TV advertising. Filter bubbles of opinion that once consisted hanging around with people you agreed with and reading newspapers that reflected your own opinion are now reinforced by algorithms. Any platform that reaches the size of the social media giants Facebook, Twitter, YouTube is bound to be exploited by people with exploitative, destructive or irresponsible aims. It's equally difficult to see how they can operate at this scale without relying heavily on algorithms. Even content moderation, which is partially automated, can take a heavy toll on the human moderators, who are required to spend days filtering the worst content imaginable, often working in bad conditions. Yet, directing how the human race spends a billion hours a day, often shaping people's beliefs in unexpected ways, is evidently a source of enormous power. And, of course, this is why these companies' stocks are worth so much. The answer given by social media companies tends to be the same when you're asked about these questions. They say that what we need is better AI. These algorithms don't need to be blunt instruments, tweaks are possible. For example, an older version of YouTube's algorithm consistently recommended stale content simply because this had the most viewing history to learn from. The developers fixed this by including the age of the video as a variable, so that it would recommend new stuff more often. Similarly, choosing to shift the focus from click likelihood to time spent watching the video was aimed to prevent low-quality videos with clickbait titles from being recommended, leading to user dissatisfaction with the platform. Recent updates aim to prioritise news from reliable and authoritative sources, and make the algorithm more transparent by explaining why recommendations were made. Other potential tweaks you could add more emphasis on whether users like videos as an indication of quality, and YouTube videos about topics prone to conspiracy, such as global warming, now include links to factual sources of information. The issue, however, is what is going to happen if this conflicts with the profitability of the company in a large way? Take a recent tweak to the algorithm, aimed to reduce bias in the recommendations based on the order videos are recommended. Essentially, if you have to scroll down further before clicking on a particular video, YouTube adds more weight to that decision, because if you're just clicking on the next video and then the next video, the first one in the queue that's recommended to you, maybe you're not thinking about what you want that much. But if you consciously scroll all the way down to the video at the bottom and then click that, that's clearly a more active engagement from you. You're more keen to see that video than the others. And so YouTube now weighs that. It now says, okay, well, this video, this person's gone out their way to see this video. This must be what they want to see. And these connections are being reinforced more than ever before. And this is a neat idea, of course, but it improved user engagement on YouTube by 0.24%. That might not sound like much, but it translates to millions of dollars in revenue for YouTube. So the person who had that idea has earned the company millions of extra dollars. Now, if addictive content and engagement wormholes are what's profitable, will the algorithm change the weight of its recommendations accordingly? What weights will be applied to ethics, morality, and unintended consequences when making these decisions? Here is the fundamental tension involved when trying to deploy these large-scale algorithms responsibly. Tech companies can tweak their algorithms, and journalists can probe their behaviour and expose some of these unintended consequences. But just as algorithms need to become more complex and avoid prioritising a single metric without considering the consequences, if we want these algorithms to be tweaked in a way that's good for society, then companies must also avoid prioritising a single metric without considering the consequences. 
So that was my article about YouTube's algorithm and how important it is to uh, ensure that we don't view these AI technologies as being divorced from human decisions or human decision making, and that we take into account the fact that the decision over what to prioritize in these algorithms has its own impact on society. The second article I want to cover is about investigative journalism in the age of algorithms. You probably have a picture of a typical investigative journalist in your head. Dogged, persistent, they dig through paper trails by day and talk to secret sources in abandoned parking lots by night. After years of painstaking investigation, the journalist uncovers convincing evidence and releases the bombshell report. Cover-ups are exposed, scandals are surfaced, and sometimes the guilty parties are even brought to justice. This is a formula we all know and love, but what happens when, instead of investigating a corrupt politician or a fraudulent business practice, journalists are looking into the behaviour of an algorithm? In an ideal world, algorithmic decision-making would be better than that made by humans. If you don't program your code to discriminate on the grounds of age, gender, race or sexuality, then you might think that those factors shouldn't be taken into account. In theory, the algorithm should make decisions based purely on the data, in a transparent way that's free from human biases. Reality, however, is not ideal. Algorithms are designed by people, and they draw their datasets from a biased world. Hidden prejudices may lead to unintended consequences. Furthermore, overconfidence in the algorithm's performance, misinterpretation of statistics, and automated decision-making processes can make appealing these decisions extremely difficult. Even when decisions are appealed, algorithms are usually incapable of explaining why they made a decision. Careful statistical analysis is needed to disentangle the effects of all the variables considered, and to determine whether or not that decision was unfair. This can make explaining the case to the general public, or to lawyers, very difficult. A classic example of recent investigative journalism about algorithms is ProPublica's study of Broward County's recidivism algorithm. The algorithm, which delivers risk scores assessing an accused person's likelihood of committing more crimes, helps judges to determine an appropriate prison sentence. ProPublica found the algorithm to have a racial bias. It was more often incorrectly assigning high-risk scores to black defendants than white. Yet Northpoint, the company that made the software, argued it was unbiased. The higher rate of false positives for black defendants could be due to the fact that they were arrested more often by the police. But then of course you're questioning whether they're encoding the police bias into the algorithm in the first place. It's illustrative of how algorithms fed on historical data can perpetuate historical biases. Hireview's algorithm assigns scores to candidates for jobs, records job applicants, and analyses their verbal and non-verbal reactions to a series of questions on the video. It then compares that score against the highest performing employees currently at the company, as a substitute for a personality test. Critics of the system argue that this just ensures your future employees look and sound like those you've hired in the past. Even when algorithms don't appear to be making obvious decisions, they can wield an outsized influence on the world. Part of the Trump-Russia scandal involved the political ads bought on Facebook. Its micro-targeting was enabled by Facebook's algorithm. Facebook's experiments in 2012 demonstrated that the ads could nudge people to go to the polls by altering what they saw in their newsfeed. More political content in the newsfeeds of certain people made them more likely to vote. According to Facebook, this experiment pushed between 60,000 to 280,000 additional voters to go to the polls. That number could easily exceed the margin of victory in a close election. You could imagine Facebook trying to tip an election by showing this selectively to some voters in some counties and not others. Just as we worry that legislators will struggle to keep up with the rapid developments in technology, and that tech companies will get away with inadequate oversight of bad actors with new tools, journalism must also adapt to cover and explain the algorithm beat. Nick Diakopoulos, director of the Computational Journalism Lab at Northwestern University, is one of the researchers hoping to prevent a world where mysterious black box algorithms are empowered to make ever more important decisions. 
with no way of explaining them and no one held accountable when they go wrong. In characterising the algorithm's beat, he identifies four main types of newsworthy stories. The first type is a story of algorithms behaving badly, as in the Broward County case. The second category of algorithmic public interest stories arise from errors or mistakes. Algorithms can be poorly designed, they can work from incorrect datasets, or they can fail to work in uh, certain cases. Then, because the algorithm is perceived as infallible, errors can persist, such as graphic or disturbing videos that slip through YouTube's content filter. The third type of story arises when the algorithm breaks social norms or even laws. Google's predictive search algorithm has been sued for defamation by an Australian man for suggesting the phrase, quote, is a former hitman as an autocomplete option after his name. Now, if an advertising company hired people to stand outside closing factories, advertising payday loans, gambling websites, and hard liquor, there might be a scandal. That doesn't seem like a very good, societally nice, productive thing to do. But an algorithm might view this behaviour as optimal, and there's no consequences for that. In what might be considered a parallel case, Facebook allowed advertisers to target people who were interested in white supremacist content for many, many years. Finally, the algorithms may not be entirely to blame. Humans can use or abuse algorithms in ways that weren't intended. Take the case detailed in Cathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. A Washington teacher was fired for having a low, quote, teacher assessment score. The score was calculated based on whether standardised test scores for the students improved under a specific teacher. But this created a perverse incentive. Teachers lied and inflated the scores their students received. Those who didn't cheat and inflate the scores were fired. The algorithm was being abused by the teachers, but arguably it should never have been used as the main factor in deciding who got bonuses and who got fired in the first place. So how can journalists hope to find stories in this new era? One way is to try and obtain the raw code of an algorithm for an audit. If the code is used by the government, such as in the 250 plus algorithms tracked by the website Algorithm Tips, freedom of information requests may allow journalists to access this code directly. If the bad behaviour arises from a simple coding error or an oversight in how the algorithm is designed, an expert may be able to reveal it, but issues with algorithms do tend to be far more complicated. If even the people who coded the system can't predict or interpret its behaviour, it's going to be difficult for outsiders to infer a personality from a page of Python. Reverse engineering the algorithm, monitoring how it behaves and occasionally prodding it with a well-chosen input might be a more successful tactic. So for example, Algorithm Watch in Germany gathers data from customers to see how they're affected by advertising and newsfeed algorithms. Who Targets Me is a browser plugin that collects information about political advertising and tells people who are reading it who's trying to influence your vote. And by crowdsourcing data from a wide range of people, its behaviour, the behaviour of the algorithm in the field, can be analysed. Investigative journalists posing as various people can attempt to use the algorithms to expose how they behave, along with their vulnerabilities. Vice News recently used this to demonstrate how anyone could pose as a US senator for the purposes of Facebook's paid-for-buy feature, which was intended to make political ads transparent. All you need to do to get an ad to look like it was paid for by a particular senator would be to say you were that person. There was no source of verification at all in the early version of that feature. And it's obviously exposing these algorithms, the flaws they have, and making them better in society, hopefully. One thing that's quite common to do is to set up a brand new account on YouTube or Facebook and then just like a certain set of pages, uh, trying to imitate a certain type of person, for example, and see what kind of advertising they get coming to them. Is Facebook reinforcing the things that this person does? Is YouTube reinforcing conspiracy theorists or white supremacists or uh, child pornographers to look at more and more related content? That's the kind of thing you can do with this uh, reverse engineering of the algorithm. Big tech companies derive much of their market value from the algorithms they've designed and the data they've gathered. 
they're unlikely to share them freely with prying journalists or regulators, so that's why this approach is so important. Yet without access to the data and the teams of analysts these companies can deploy, it's hard to get a handle on what's happening and who's responsible. The issue is that even the people who are coding these algorithms, particularly in the case of black box neural networks, might not have any idea what their algorithm is doing. And algorithms are not static. Google's algorithm changes 600 times a year. These are dynamic systems that respond to changing conditions in the environment, and therefore their behaviour might not be consistent. And finally, of course, even though blaming an algorithm is one thing, linking the story back to a responsible person can be very tough, especially when the organisational structure is as opaque as the algorithms themselves. And if you ultimately want to hold the people designing the algorithms to account for their behaviour, it can be very difficult when they have this plausible deniability argument of, oh, we don't know how the algorithm works, we can't be expected to understand these things. And this is a sort of an issue with the externalizing of AI and machine learning that we spoke about in our interview with Gemma Milne a few weeks ago. Um, part of the issue that you can have with this is that it allows companies to shift responsibility onto the algorithm as opposed to taking it for themselves. Now, as difficult as these stories might be to discover and relate accurately, journalists, politicians and citizens must start adapting to a world where algorithms increasingly call the shots, where they're increasingly characters and forces that influence the world that we live in. Because there's no turning back, humans cannot possibly analyse the sheer volume of data that companies and governments will hope to leverage to their advantage, and as long as they can see that there's going to be some advantage to doing this, they're going to continue to deploy the algorithms. And as these algorithms become more pervasive and influential, shaping whole nations and societies, along with billions of hours of our free time, holding them accountable will be just as important as holding politicians responsible. The institutions and tools to do this we have to start developing now, or we'll all have to live with the consequences. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. You'll find the contact form there where you can get in touch with us. It all goes to my email. I try to respond to whatever I get hold of. It's always nice to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at physicspod. We have the Facebook page, Physical Attraction. On the website, physicspodcast.com, you'll see options to donate to the show on PayPal or subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, The other things you can do to help the show, of course, are always to tell as many people as possible to listen to it and uh, review it on iTunes, other places, and so on. No one really knows whether these reviews are good for the algorithms that determine whether people see my podcast or not, but it can't hurt. Until next time then, take care.